Welcome, I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Thank you for joining us for a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast now on Mental Health News Radio Network. This podcast is also available wherever you get your podcasts, but I do suggest checking out Mental Health News Radio Network to find all your podcasts related to mental health. Today's guest is Justin Woodbury, victims of abuse advocate and author of Sheltered But Not Protected, a memoir about a young boy growing up in the independent fundamentalist Baptist church, the sexual, mental, and emotional abuse he experienced, how he escaped, and his journey to find healing and forgiveness. Justin, thank you so much for joining me today. I yeah, really thank you for having me. Appreciate yes. it. My story is similar, but not, but we can definitely get into that. But okay. if, could you share your um, story, a little bit about your story with my audience? Yeah, for sure. So the the quick version of it is I grew up in the independent fundamental Baptist church. Uh, it was cultish. It was it was so cultish that even other strict churches called it a cult. But the the, the basis of the, the church was... It was all what would be called first-generation Christians. So my parents and the pastor and other people that started the church grew up in the hippie movement, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and they experienced a lot of pain as a result of that. And so they started a church, and their whole goal was to protect their kids and other people in the church from having experienced that same pain that they experienced. So uh, both of my parents were sexually abused and they attribute some of that to growing up in the world and, and stuff like that. So they wanted to protect us from that. So they told us that if we had followed us, if we followed a certain set of rules and principles like stay away from tv don't go to the movie theater women had to wear short dresses we couldn't associate with people outside of the world we couldn't listen to uh worldly music if we followed these certain sets of rules we would be pr protected from the same pain that they experienced by by not following those rules and so uh, that's the way we grew up but what they didn't realize until it was too late that the very things they were trying to protect us from happened right within that very sheltered environment right within the church and so my story is when I was 13 years old my mom's best friend uh, started grooming me we find that out later years later a couple of years after that there was an, a, a sexual incident and then when I was a junior in high school it turned into a full-blown sexual uh, abuse situation. Uh, I used to call it a sexual affair, but affair makes me think of two people that are consenting and it was definitely not that. So uh, that happened. It culminated when she started conspiring with me to kill her husband so we could be together because uh, mm -hmm. our church didn't believe in marriage and divorce. Uh, so she couldn't divorce her husband uh, and be left with three kids. She needed to kill him so we could be together. And so that's kind of when it peaked. And then there's stuff that happened after that. But that's the that's the quick version. Wow. And I'm, I'm curious in the grooming process, which as a victim, especially as a child, you don't really know what's happening did she make you feel uncomfortable? Were you creeped out of, um, like around her as a kid before any of the abuse actually happened? Not, not even a little bit. Uh, yeah. That's a good question. So, you know, um, 
she was just a family friend. She was my mom's best friend. Uh, she was in a church where it was kind of children should be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. uh, she was a an adult who sat down and took interest in what I was interested in and would mm -hmm. ask me about things that I was wanting to talk about and talk to me about those. So I actually liked her. I liked being around her. She was a really cool person that I felt got me when all the other adults did not get me. So I did not feel one bit uncomfortable when uh, leading up to that for years. Wow. Yeah. And and I think that's the thing with grooming. That's how, that's how people kind of get you. And that's, yeah. and that's a really scary thing. Um, I, your, your title sheltered, but not protected. I, it's so fascinating to me Um, for myself. I'm, I was very sheltered as a child. Um, I, um, you know, I was told that the outside world, like you, is bad. Bad things happen out there. We'll protect you here. However, I was actually sexually abused by my father. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, growing up in that environment, thinking, okay, it's really bad out there, but I'm living in my own personal hell. What is there to live for? Mm -hmm. I was extremely suicidal at a very yes. young age. Yes. How did you, how did you get through that? You know, it's in interesting. I think that the, and I, I say this often when I give talks and stuff, but I, I think the, the Me Too movement has come so far and I'm so thankful for, you know, I was just recently at an event where, uh, the, the judge who presided over the Rachel Den Hollander case and the Larry Nassar case, uh, I can't remember her name, but anyways, I was at an event there and she talked about that. I'm, I'm thankful for strong women who have stood up and said, Hey, me too. And I think it's come so far and I think it has a long ways to go. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to male sexual abuse, men don't talk about it. It's not cool. I'm a, I'm not an anomaly for having a story. There's a lot of sexually abused males. I'm an anomaly for telling my story because a lot of them won't do it. And so I, I think there's a, there's a different view on male sexual abuse that when I was going through it and it was happening to me and even years afterwards, actually for several years afterwards, until I actually held my son in my hands and realized, whoa, this was abuse. Up until that point, I, I just saw it as something I had done wrong. That was, that was uh, consensual. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and people who found out about it were high-fiving me and saying, man, I'd give anything to have a, an older woman teach you, uh, teach me about sex. And, and I mean, she was my, I hate to say this, but she was my first. I, I learned everything from her up until what happened with her. I had never touched another girl. I had never even had a girlfriend. And so as a junior in high school, she became my first of everything. And unfortunately, my last, there's certain things that I still don't do to this day. Uh, because of that. So uh, I guess to answer your question, Laura Lee, I, I, it didn't even affect me until I was in my thirties. Oh, wow. Um, I, I mean, consciously affected me. It subconsciously affected me a lot. I mean, there's weight gain and just bad habits that I turned to, but uh, consciously it didn't really affect me too much until I was in my thirties and uh, we had our first child. Uh, so I, I can't speak too much to how I felt when it happened because like, again, it, it, part, part of the story was that the church found out um, 
I was church disciplined. She was church disciplined. I had to apologize to her husband for stealing his wife. She had to apologize to my parents for what she did. And so the whole thing was handled where yet, I mean, my pastor scored the blame 49 to 51%. So I was to blame 49% of what happened because uh, I wasn't a Joseph in the Bible, which means I didn't run. And she was 51% responsible because she was the adult in the situation. So, um, with all those things being said, I didn't experience, I experienced guilt, but not what probably you experienced um, and so many other survivors experienced just because I was a guy, she was a woman. And it was, I call it the Stifler's mom effect. I mean, they write, they make movies out of the situation that happened with me. The thing is, it's not cool. It's not the male sexual right to passage. It hurts. It affected me in ways that I'm still learning about. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that's no, it's perfectly. No, I completely understand. You know, I, 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 I actually disassociated and realized what that had, ha- what had happened to me in my thirties. Okay, you know? So maybe that's what happened too. I disassociated. Yeah. I just, I couldn't, I didn't know. I didn't, I thought that was just something that happened and other behaviors, I guess if you, if it, if you want to call it PTSD, the symptoms of what had happened, I separated that. I just thought I was just not a good person. I was, something was wrong with me um, for so long. Um, And, and for me, you know, that affected me. I got into drugs and alcohol. Um, Do you mind sharing how, it affected you. I know you said you pro- you disassociated and yeah. you, you subconsciously didn't really think about it. But were there things that or like you said, you're still learning about yeah. that really affected you into adulthood? Yeah. So um, it I, first of all, uh, the, the first thing is shame. So I experienced immense shame. And Brene Brown, you know, talks about shame is, you know, people when they they do something um they can either feel humiliated or embarrassed or guilty. Guilt says I did a bad thing. Shame says I'm a bad person. And so I was immediately made to feel like I was a bad person. And so that, that shame carried through, um, through my college years and into my young adult years, all the way up until I was 30. And I left the, in the, the church movement because I wound up coming back and serving as the music pastor of that church that I had grown up in. And there's, the, the abuse that continued um, happened because I was too shame-driven to do something about it or to re- even realize that it was abuse, if that makes sense. So there was right. shame that went on for years. Uh, weight gain. So I, I over the years, gained uh, about 130 pounds um, from just binge eating, distressing, whatever people call it. I turn to food. Um, a lot of people turn to drugs, a lot of people turn to alcohol. And I'm I'm thankful that we didn't have that in our house, but we are an Italian family where there's always food. And if if overeating was as lethal as overdosing on drugs, I would have been dead thousands of times over. And until I, I was, I was obese. I had I, I could barely make it up the stairs. I was so big. And so those two things were the worst. Uh, I think that that happened. And then when I got married, I, I didn't realize all of the sexually related um, things that would happen uh, with my wife that I did triggers and stuff like that happened constantly and um, sometimes still do. Wow. Yes. I, I mean, I, I, I 
it bothers me that they gave you you took 49 percent of the blame there yeah, yeah. for that i mean how does that how does that sit with it now it's ridiculous <laughs> i mean i i have come so far in my healing journey that i recognize that as just untrue horrible thing to say to somebody but it took years to get to that point um and even though i can recognize it clearly and anybody person no you can't give consent minors can't give consent there there's victims and there's predators if you're a victim then you're 100 percent not responsible um, i recognize that so easily in every story i read about sometimes i still struggle with recognizing that in my own story but i've come so far with that but you know again when it, at the time when when the blame was scored i was like yeah you're right i could have said no i could have ran there's so many things i could have done and i chose not to so i am to blame i mean that shame was there i was a mm. bad person yeah no i believe that you said that it was when your child was born is that when you figured out that you needed to get help or were you getting help before then no, I, I didn't even realize I needed help then. I just, I, I I had a shift in thinking to where I went from being resentful, feeling guilty, whatever, to then just anger. Um, the anger is what drove me to write my book. Uh, I thought it was something different. And eventually, by the time I published it, I had worked through that. But looking down at my son, um, his just beautiful as a first-time parent his beautiful face and his small features and everything I just became overwhelmed with this sense of protection for him and right at the same time I thought oh my gosh this is not what I experienced my parents failed in protecting me and I just became so angry it but it wasn't until writing my book and wanting to not write the book from a place of anger, but as a, out of a place of healing and forgiveness. I mean, it took me several years to write the book because of, I know I could just write a book out of anger, expose a bunch of dirty laundry of other people. Cause I mentioned names in the book and tell situations. Um, but I didn't want to come from a place of that. I wanted to come from a place of forgiveness and healing, not realizing that healing is a journey and that everyone is still on their healing journey that they've been abused. I don't think it ever stops. But it was then when I thought, you know what, I need to get some counseling. And I went and got uh, counseling. But yeah. Wow. When, how old are you when the church intervened and, you know, they placed their blame where they, where they yeah. were? <laughs> yeah. So I was um, 19. So, mm -hmm. so what had happened was uh, after I graduated from high school, um, and, and by the way, when, when everything kind of ended uh you know carolyn my abuser she she said by the way if you ever repeat anything that ever happened i will completely deny it nobody will believe me or believe you everyone will believe me because i'm an established i mean she was she was the model housewife mother churchgoer in our church she was in the nursery she taught sunday school oh, she was in the choir yeah so she was she wore long dresses she was the first one at the altar when there's an altar call for those that know about those things uh and she was always crying wanting to do better for her husband and stuff so so she's like nobody will believe you um everyone will believe me so you better not repeat it so i didn't it was i, I wanted nothing to do with it well 
my freshman year at college when I was 19, I actually, my, uh, so something happened. If I can just give a little bit of context, yes, please. when, when I graduated from high school, two things happened. I was homeschooled. Two things happened. One, Carolyn made my graduation cake. Uh, my mom had no idea what had happened. And Carolyn had been begging her, please let me make your son's cake. I'll do it for free and whatever. So she made my cake. And so I remember at my graduation party, her being there and me not eating my cake because I didn't trust what in the world she, I, I just mm -hmm. had all these thoughts of what she could have done to that cake. So I didn't eat it. Well, a couple of weeks later, my parents, as a graduation present, as a senior trip, because we were homeschooled, we didn't go on like a senior class trip. As a present, they sent my sister and I to Arizona. I grew up in Michigan. They sent my sister and I to Arizona to uh, visit our cousins. So we're thousands of miles away. And I just remember feeling safe in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Well, we walked in one day after being outside with our cousins and my aunt came to us and she's like, hey, Justin and Shannon, my sister's name is Shannon. He's like, Justin and Shannon, you've got a postcard from a, a Mrs. Carolyn Mathia. And I, I can't even tell you what that did for me. The thought mm -hmm. of uh, being thousands of miles away and still not being safe just it did something to me, Laura Lee. I, I can't explain it to, but I just remember shaking and running upstairs and my cousins coming up after me and saying, what is going on? But the fact that this woman was able to go to my parents and say, Hey, can I send Shannon and Justin a postcard and let them know I'm praying for their safety while they're gone. And my mom just gave them my aunt's address and she did that. So when I came home, I was so broken up about that, that I pulled my dad aside and said, I've got to tell you what happened. And so I told him and I made him promise not to tell. And he didn't. And I have mixed feelings of, as to whether or not he should have, but he didn't tell. Well, I, I went to college that semester. And at the end of my freshman year, my dad called me up at school and he said, you've got to go to your pastor and tell him what happened because she's starting to prey on other children. And I'm sure you don't want to those children to happen with the same thing happened to them that happened to you. So you've got to tell them. And I said, okay, to protect other children from it, I will tell the pastor. Wow. Wow. Did, and you did. And did. what, and then that started the whole, and, and then I'm assuming this didn't go to the police department. This is, you, oh. this is handled within. And yep, what exactly. she's, She's still hanging out with more. What, you said she worked in the nursery. Was she still yeah. around other children? Up to that point, she was, yeah. And so you're right. She wasn't, even though my pastor, by Michigan law, is a mandated reporter, right. uh, it was not um, reported. They swept it under the rug. It didn't even go before the church. Uh, but like I said, I was church disciplined. She was church disciplined. So she was not, when he found out, um, she was not allowed to work in the nursery and they eventually left the church, joined another church and she was plugged right into that church. I mean, there was mm. no, my pastor never called that pastor of the other church to report her. So she just, she did her damage at our church and then just moved on to another church. But yeah, she, there's no accountability there. Uh, once she left our church. You, you said that she was a friend of your parents or your mother. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, once this got out, what had happened? Did you feel like you had the support of your parents? Yes. And I, I hesitate because they didn't support me as a survivor or a victim. They supported me as a repentant 
young adult, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So, you know, my mom was angry at her. My dad was extremely angry at her. My, my dad had kind of seen what was going on a few years earlier and he warned a whole family about it. Um, and so my dad was angry that he was right, but he had no support from anyone. My mom was like, she said, she told my dad that he was perverted for even thinking that one of her friends could be after her son. So, um, so my dad was angry. My mom was upset and, but they were just thankful that I was repentant, um, and wanting to move on. So I, you know, I no longer blame them for this, but they never got me counseling or anything um, during that time because I didn't need counseling in their heads because I had, I had, I had repented. Right. I went through the church discipline process. I had been restored and life went on as normal. How do you look at the church now? Um, I think a lot of churches are a predator's playground. Mm. they they focus so much on the externals if you dress a certain way if you carry a certain bible uh if you if you uh talk the talk you probably are walking the walk and so you can go into a church and some churches i mean my parents still attend a church to this day that doesn't require background checks for nursery workers and stuff and so um I have a love-hate relationship with the church. My wife and I attend a church. Uh, I still believe in God, but not the God I grew up believing in. Uh, and I, I think, I would say most churches don't have the appropriate checks in place and precautions in place to protect children from predators. That That is my opinion. And, and so... That being said, do you, what do you hope? You hope that this is uh, for, for churches and these types of organization, that this is going to be something that is standard maybe for, for their, their employees and their staff. Yeah, I do hope that. And, you know, I, I've reached out to many churches trying to tell them about my book uh, to try to, to try to get in, in there and churches that the churches that I grew up in, don't want anything to do with that. You know, the, the Baptist church will expose the Catholic church and the Mormon church all day long about the sexual problems that go on in there. Mm. The second you talk about one of their own, you are, you are crossing a line. And so I have been publicly uh, called out. I have been shunned. I mean, so many things have happened um, with those. They want nothing to do with, with, um, with my book or my story or my message or my passion. They want nothing to do with it. They I, say think, they do. I think that's a sign. That's a, that's a yeah. sign that they, they, that's something they, if they don't want to touch it and they don't want to use this example as a way to better themselves, yes. there that's, I, I feel like that, that you don't, why I, I personally wouldn't want to worship there. Yeah, exactly. Um, because there's some things that are just more important and it's, you know, we can have this idea that, oh, we, we created this church so that everyone's protected and no one is abused, but then something happens. You have a choice. You do something about it yes. or you just pretend it didn't happen. And that just yes. perpetuates. Yes. Oh, so as a parent, 
how how do you how do you raise your children differently? How do you because I, I, I as a as a parent who has for me who struggled with you know the abuse and you know parenting it's it's really difficult for me yeah. you know i'm i'm constantly working on myself to be a better parent i there you know there was a point before i actually got help um i got help when i was 35 um and i had two small children yeah it was really before that i was very reactive everything yes. scared yes. me yes everything just don't do that. Don't do that. And it was, it was, it, I, I, even though I felt like I was creating a safe place for my children, trying to protect them because I was so scared. I, I operated from a place of fear. Yes. And, and now I'm, I'm working from a place of healing and, yes. it, but it's a constant, it's a constant struggle. Yes, it is. How, how are you doing with that? So uh, a couple of things I can say about that. One is we are trying to raise our children and empower them to say no and mm. to ask why. And so we, we grew up with a, uh, a series called Patch the Pirate. And uh, it was just this kid series that told stories and then applied biblical truths to it and stuff like that. And so one of the songs that this tape that we, one of the tapes we listened to had a song that said, I will obey the first time I'm told. I will obey right away. Never asking why, never with a sigh, I will obey right away. That was the, the course. And so um, I think teaching kids to never ask why grooms them and prepares them for being molested by an older adult and not being able to say why or say no. And so we are trying to raise our kids to feel comfortable saying no, or be comfortable telling their relatives, if the relative says, can I have a hug or can I have a kiss by them saying, no, I don't want you to do, I don't want to do that. Uh, it's weird. I don't think our family necessarily appreciates it, right. um, but we're trying to empower them in that sense to be able to say no. Um, another thing is, you know, so many people have this idea of a predator that, that looks like um the Hannibal Lecter type person. Mm -hmm. And so I remember a couple of years ago when Target opened their bathroom policy for transgender people to use, pick the bathroom of the choice and whatever. I remember people getting on there and saying, if I ever see some transgender man coming into the woman's bathroom, I will beat the crap. I mean, it's just this angry, hateful right. thing. And I have my own opinions on that, but I wrote back and I made a post, of, excuse me, a post about it. And I said, you watch the transgender person do it all you want, but I'm going to be watching the nice looking dressed man that uses the men's bathroom and then molests my kid um, because that's what I experienced. So mm -hmm. if I go to a church, I'm not worried about the guy that is not dressed nicely or is acting a little weird or creepy or whatever. I'm worried about the guy that comes up and introduces himself to me and wants to get to know me and wants to have our family over and stuff. So uh, I'm a little bit weird probably in that, but nope. um, I, I mistrust the people I'm closest to more than the people I'm not. Um, and, and it's not like I live my life in mistrust, but my guard is never I never let my guard down around the people I trust the most, if that makes sense. I mean, outside of my wife and stuff like that, but right, um, right. close friends, family members, I, I just keep an eye on that because they're the ones who are most likely to, to offend and to molest. And that's what happened to me. My mom's best friend, a family friend that came over all the times with, she babysat for us. Like, it's just, 
that's the way I am. So that, that's how I raise my family. It's how I raise my kids. I, I don't feel like I live in a, a life of suspicion or fear. Um, but it's just always keeping my guard up around my children. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was abused by my father. So yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's very, you know, and, and I, I believe it's like 90 something percent of people who do get abused, get abused by a family member or a family friend or someone that they trust. And yes. that is what, and, and that's what makes sense. And, yes. you know, for us, especially, yeah. um, and to protect them from that. And I, I agree everywhere that, you know, all the professionals I talk to, they say, don't, don't force your children to, to hug yep. someone else, to hug yeah. an adult. Yeah. Um, cause for me, I was always told, you know, why aren't you, why don't you want to hug them? Yes. Hug them. Yes. Don't yes. be rude. Yes. And, and that really just teach that just taught me the wrong way. And, and, you know, I'm still undoing these, these behaviors in my head. You know, it's funny before we got, before I got on this call, I had a therapy session with my therapist this morning and I'm, I'm still undoing a lot of the, you know, I, the whole idea of being curious. I was never allowed to be curious. I was co yes. considered the why child. Mm -hmm. I was the annoying child who always asked why, um, and they really killed my spirit and my my yes. curiosity and things. And because we grew up in a generation where that was not acceptable, it was yes. not acceptable to ask why. It was yeah. not acceptable to question authority yes. Yes. And, and adults and your elders. And it's just, it just really, it was just a breeding ground for, you know, right. children to just give in to yes adults and yes. and that's it, that's just such a hard thing to yes. to really under to swallow it's just it's just a lot yeah um what is what do you want i know you are a victims of abuse advocate what do you want what is your message for for anyone for parents especially um you know moving forward with what you've learned and taking your mess and turning it into your message what is the message yeah, so my message is for everyone, but I, I think I specifically have a a heart, if I can say, for victim male victims of sexual abuse, mm. only because of, of what I said. It's not talked about. It's not taken as seriously. Uh, I, I was on a, a podcast um, about a year ago, and it got over a million views, and there's thousands of comments and stuff and you know it's like a good chunk of the comments were men just berating my story making fun of me and stuff and i i've grown past that um i i like to tell one of my favorite quotes is by theodore roosevelt where he says it, it doesn't matter it, it gets to the man in the arena with you fighting alongside of you they're the ones who you should um take criticism from but if there's someone that are out in the stands and they're not in the arena fighting with you they don't matter mm -hmm. and so i've learned to become um shame resilient i guess you could call that um to, to, to that but just my my message to male survivors is that it's not okay that they that me too um to them and, you know, interestingly enough, when I go to events and speak at events, I have people come up to me and they just do it in different ways. Some of them want to, you know, 
you know, fist bump me and, and they will very awkwardly just say me too. And they walk away, but mm. just seeing the healing that that brings, that's a passion of mine. As far as my message to parents, um, I, I think a couple of things, one, believe your spouse. Uh, like I said, my mom didn't believe my dad and it, a lot could have been stopped probably. Mm. So if your spouse, you know, err on the side of caution when it comes to that, uh, first of all, and then secondly, I think, uh, just never let your guard down, um, especially among family and friends. Uh, yeah. I mean, 90% of the sexual abuse that happened with me was right, right in the other room. Um, wow. Carolyn would say, Hey, Justin, didn't you get new carpet in your bedroom? Let's go check it out. And we would go upstairs and then something would happen. And, and she would say that right in front of my mom and my mom was, would, would, would trust her to go up there. Now I think if, my dad's best friend asked my sister to go up and check out the carpet. Even in the 1990s, mm. it would have been different. Um, you know, even back then, he would have been like, well, that's a little bit creepy. But for a woman to ask a young boy to do that, it just seemed completely innocent. So I, I think, I, I think that, again, the, the message is think outside of the box when it comes to who you think might be a predator. Um, because that's that's usually who it is. Wow. Yes. I, I mean, you know, for me, when I'm, when I'm looking at guests for my podcast, um, they typically come to me, but it, I don't get many men who are willing to come on the podcast and talk about it. When I, when I, when I see it, I'm like, I, I, you know, let's, let's talk about this more, you know, men get abused too. And I feel you know, like you said, like this whole Stifler's mom situation, yes, yes. and it's that's not how it's supposed to no. be, and it's a shame that that's that you know throughout the '90s, you know, like that was that was that was a cool thing, and I can't yes. imagine someone who was just like, yes, that happened to me, but it, I have to pretend that that I really liked it because that's right. Uh, I, I would what, what? How do we do that? How do we change that narrative? You know, um, I think one person at a time right now, I, I, I personally think, Lori Lee, in, a, in the next couple of years, there's going to be a Me Too male, male, male Me Too movement. I've talked to some other uh, survivors and some other people, and they think that that's, that's starting to become a thing. I think probably my book, my story is a little bit early when it, when it comes to that, but I, I have no doubt that in a couple of years, I'll probably be um contacted and and stuff um but i i think awareness is gonna change that and then i, I really think more people like myself and you know um people say that i'm brave and i don't i don't feel brave one bit i i feel passionate to share my story to help people heal and to help parents help their children, keep their children from something that happened to me. I don't feel one bit brave. I do feel vulnerable every time I get on a podcast, every time I get up to speak, it's, it's extremely vulnerable. Um, but, but I guess, the, sorry, the answer is that more people willing to be vulnerable and speaking out 
is is really I think what's going to change. I mean, look what happened with uh, with the Larry Nassar case when one person like a Rachel Den Hollander spoke up, and then hundreds of victims came forward, and that really kind of propelled that Me Too movement forward. And I, I know that's not the original ones. So I forget who the celebrity was that that started that, but it just it just takes one person to speak out, and another person. And I think it just spreads. Right. It's a domino effect of healing, sharing your story. I absolutely agree. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Yeah. Um, I don't want to be cliche, but I can say that um, looking back over the past 25 years, um, that in in my situation at least that time and counseling the correct type of counseling mm-hmm. has healed a lot and I, I i wouldn't say that time heals all but i think time does heal i mean i'm sitting in in an office my shades are down so um you can't see out but i'm there's beautiful rocky mountains behind me uh i am the chief marketing officer of a large insurance company uh, I have a team that I love to work with, um, and it, you know I have a, a wife that loves me. I have two kids that I love and that love me, and I would say that I am a thriver. I love the mm-hmm. I love the title of your thing, a, a trauma survivor thriver podcast, and there's so much and I talk about it in my, my book too, but there's, there's so much healing that had to take place for me to be able to even go for the chief marketing officer position when it opened up mm-hmm. in my company or the company I work for. Um, but I, I, I think time heals all. I think um, I hate to, to use the F word and say forgiveness, right? Because that is such a twisted term and it's applied so twisted, but uh, when I when I experienced forgiveness, and my favorite definition of forgiveness is uh, to, to forgiveness is like setting a prisoner free, only to find out that you were that prisoner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, it certainly isn't the, the the forgiveness that I was taught. You know, the forgive and forget, and turn the yeah. other cheek, and all that other stuff. And so, I think coming to grips with whether it's just you call it forgiveness or releasing somebody or releasing yourself from this, whatever it is, I think that's helpful too. But, but yeah, understanding forgiveness for me, it was very much there was compassion. What had happened to what happened to my father for him to feel that this was okay. And I think when I found that compassion and, you know, I did it through a, a lot of healing um, and a lot of, you know, alternative healing. Yes. Um, and that was where I found that compassion. I don't I don't necessarily forgive what he did, but I understand right. that it wasn't about me. And I was yes. able to yes. forgive myself for yes. putting that on me. Yes. 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 Well, thank you so much. I am so grateful that you came on and shared your story. You are truly a thriver, a trauma survivor thriver. And so I am I'm so honored that I had you come on my show. So thank you. Thank you, Laura Lee. I appreciate it. Absolutely. That was Justin Woodbury, victims of abuse advocate and author of Sheltered But Not Protected, 
For more information on Justin and his book, check out the show notes. November's issue of Authentic Insider is out. Check out Authentic Insider at TraumaSurvivorThriver.com. That's TraumaSurvivorThriver.com, as well as past episodes of a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. We will be taking a break for the holidays, and we will be coming back strong into the new year with a new episode when we discuss human trafficking with no trafficking zone president and human trafficking advocate Jacqueline Aludo. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thank you for being a part of the conversation. Take care. Mm-hmm.